please, if you would, open in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings 19, and if you stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 18 as we continue on in the story of Elijah. We just kind of parachuted in there last week, and we'll, we'll, we'll move our way out of the story this week, but just a, really a sweet passage to look at the difficulties that God's people undergo, but how God responds to his people even in their difficulty. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, arise and eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came to a cave and lodged there and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with a sword and I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of, of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram, and Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abimelech, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Please be seated. Now, you are probably aware that it's a noted phenomenon that during the holiday time, it is often more easy to be depressed, that people are often discouraged because of the difficulties, not only of the holiday season, <coughs> excuse me, but just of, of the thoughts that come to their mind, perhaps of loved ones or difficulties that they have faced. And it is also true that after the holidays, there seems to be perhaps even a greater opportunity for discouragement. I was reading a little bit on, uh, about this this last week, and it says this post-holiday letdown after January 1 can be the result of emotional disappointments experienced during the preceding months, as well as the physical reactions caused by fatigue and stress from just the busyness of the time. And so often there's a letdown as we start the new year. There, you know, now we've, all the holidays have gone, and perhaps the the mem memories of loved ones and people that were part of your life that no longer are. All of these things can lead to great discouragement. So. The, this particular article laid out, you know, here's some ways that you can overcome that discouragement. 
One, uh, keep expectations low. That's a great way to overcome discouragement. Don't, don't expect anything, and so then you're fine. Uh, remember that, uh, number two, remember that the holiday season isn't going to automatically remove feelings of loneliness. I mean, that certainly is true. Just because other people are happy or because it's a time of celebration, the, the feelings of loneliness or disappointment aren't going to go away. So I say, well, let go of the past. Don't be disappointed if they're not like they used to be. Life brings change. Just kind of get over it. Walk past it. Then, and they say, don't drink too much. Don't be afraid to try new things. Lots of things that are kind of typical. And uh, one, of the, one of my favorite ones was do something for someone else. It's an old remedy, but it can help. Yeah, serving others, pouring out your life for other people. Yeah, it's the biblical remedy for most of what ails you. That's kind of an aside. That was kind of their last thing. Try that. Well, because things can be very difficult. Life is difficult. And the holidays, again, they don't change that. And even the celebration of our Lord Jesus Christ, as joyous and as special as it is, can, in fact, bring to our hearts and minds a longing for things in our life that didn't happen as we would have expected or people that no longer are in our lives that we would have wished to be there. And there's oftentimes for us a spiritual depression. And if you haven't wrestled through times where you're just in your soul, you were discouraged, I mean, you haven't lived. I mean, this is how life works. Things are difficult. And again, it's this time of year that often these things come to the fore. Now, we have every reason to be full of confidence in God and in His Word, and we should seek to act in joyful confidence in carrying out all of His purposes. But what will we do when our confidence slips, when the world and its people and its circumstances and the difficulties we face seem too great for us? Now, as Christians, it is just here that our God's faithfulness is most fully seen, for He does not desert us when we lack courage and faithfulness. He remains with us. He comes to us. He comforts us. He cares for us so that we can rise up and serve Him again. However, as we'll see in our text, not only does God comfort us, but He also confronts us gently, carefully, according to to the truths of His character and nature. He reminds us through His Word that He's in control, that He is working all things after the counsel of His will. And So when things don't go as we plan, when life doesn't go as we have planned it, we must learn, we must practice being thankful and being content with what God has provided. See, when we fail to do this, we need to be able to receive both God's comfort and His confrontation so that we will change our hearts, that we will step forward in faithful obedience. We have to remember that God is always working that He desires for us to always, for for our whole lives, to take an active, joyful part in His plan, even when it makes no sense to us. And that's usually what causes our problem. As Christians, we're like, Lord, we wanted these things, and we were hoping this would be accomplished, and we were hoping these these actions would take place, and they haven't. Lord, what are you doing? God so often is telling us, I'm not doing the things that you expect. I'm not doing what you want. Even when those desires are good, I'm accomplishing my plan. Join me. Join me. So what we'll see this morning is that when we fail to respond properly to God in the midst of difficult circumstances, He is faithful to comfort us, to gently confront us with the truth of His Word, and to call us back to faithful obedience. When we fail to properly respond to God in the midst of difficult circumstances, He is faithful to comfort us, to gently confront us with the truth of His Word, and to call us to faithful obedience. It is God's way to continually comfort, confront, and call His people to the obedience of faith. Now, I just jumped you right into the middle of the story of Elijah last time, and we walked our way through his triumph on Mount Carmel. He steps forward in this quiet, simple prayer, asks for God to answer, and he does, vaporizing the sacrifice, and the people fall on their faces. The Lord, he is God, they cry. And so it might seem that revival has come. We left you there, but I also left you with a teaser last week. It's like, 
only, it was only a one-day revival. It didn't really last. Yet, God was honored. God chose that time and that opportunity to demonstrate His greatness, and that was a powerful display of His sovereignty, purposeful of God. But we need to be very careful that as we step into this new year that we remember that it is actually very rare that God works in that way. Only at certain times does God choose to reveal Himself in those kinds of actions. He does that, but He does so according to His own desires, and very rarely, even in the history of the Bible, even in, in, in the miraculous times when God is doing work that's more visible, it's very rare when He does things like this, and we need to remember that. Elijah will need to remember that because he is certain that his, his work has been accomplished. Remember, his one work, what did he want to do? He wanted God to be honored, and he wanted the people to turn back to God, to find their true purpose in Him, and it looked like maybe that had happened. Well, i got to fast forward you a little bit to the end of chapter 18, because not only does God answer Elijah in bringing fire through just a very simple prayer, he also answers Elijah in bringing rain. Elijah goes up on the mountain, tells Ahab, look, have a party. It's fascinating. Ahab has the prophets of Baal killed, or Elijah kills them. Ahab, the king, is there, and he celebrates this. Right? It, it as, is as though that even perhaps the king was going to turn back. There was going to be revival. So Ahab is having a party. Elijah goes up on the mountain and begins to pray, God, send the rain. Remember, he goes back seven times, a little teeny cloud. You, you know the story from your Sunday school time, hopefully. And, and God answers. And so, this, and, and so Elijah says to Ahab, look, you better get in your chariot, head for Jezreel, head for your palace, because it's going to rain. It's going to rain so hard that you're not even going to be able to get there. So God answers in these mighty ways. He brings the fire. He brings the rain. And this is all, remember, simply by prayer. James, one, or James 4, is, uh, 5 is clear. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Right? He wasn't some mighty, super spiritual guy. He was a humble man of God. and His prayers are the same as our prayers. We pray to the same God. It's not your strength in prayer. It's God's strength in prayer. We need to remember that. God does answer our prayers. Right? And so he answered Elijah's. And he, he you know, says in James, he, he was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed it wouldn't rain, and it didn't. He prayed that it would rain, and it did. I mean, these are the things that God does. And yet... Elijah is about to receive the greatest disappointment of his life because we also know from our text, if you're reading at the, if you're reading at the end of verse 18, that Elijah essentially, he says, he girds up his loins, he, he takes his, his uh, uh, robe and puts, tucks it up into his belt and in a, it would seem in a Holy Spirit-empowered foot race, he outraces Ahab's chariot, the horses in the chariot, to Jezreel. Almost like a footman, he's running before him, proclaiming what? It would seem that Elijah, as he runs into Jezreel, right, the place where the palace, where Ahab's palace is, he left Jezebel there, remember, with probably the, the 400 prophets of Asherah, but he goes plowing into the city, proclaiming the revival. I mean, Ahab has just been celebrating the killing of the prophets, seemingly he himself having turned back to God. So Elijah runs into the city, proclaiming, or at least giving testimony to this revival. He's running in front of Ahab as someone who is in his favor, and so it would seem that all is well. Verse 46 of chapter 18, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. This is why, why we know it was a supernatural race. Right? This wasn't Usain Bolt you know, outrunning uh, Ahab. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He girded up his loins. He outran Ahab to Jez, Jezreel. All is good. And sometimes in your life, I think you reach points like this. You're like, wow, things are going well. And in and and, and my family, the things I was hoping to be accomplished are. And my kids are walking with God. And, and, and things in the church are going well. And it looks like all, looks like all is well. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Ahab makes a beehab, beeh, uh, beeline for the palace. 
It kind of walks in you. Hey, you have to get the whole story. I would love to you know, do the 25 lessons. We don't have time. But uh, he kind of comes in. Look, it seems immediately he changes his countenance, right? He's been riding in the chariot. You know, we just destroyed the prophets of Baal. Here's Elijah. Man, once Jezebel gets in his range, he like walks in. It's almost like his head goes down. He shuffles in. He's like, um, Elijah killed the prophets. No, you were there, right? He was watching it happen. He let it go on, and he ate and drank after it happened. He forgot to tell Jezebel that. Right? Oh, Elijah killed all your prophets, right? But with the sword, this is what he did. Fire fell. I couldn't, what could I do? Fire fell. People fell down. We killed all the prophets. I had a party. Well, Jezebel will have none of it. Ahab is a weak-willed, lily-livered, you know, foolish man. He's controlled by his wife. By the way, marry well. Ahab married poorly. He married a priestess of a false god. Don't do that kind of thing, all right? And he's under total domination by her. I mean, every time he comes back into her influence, he just instantly snaps back to Baal, always. God, you know, Ahab's there, or Elijah's there, we're going to serve God. Then he walks back to Jezebel, Baal, we love Baal, right? I mean, this is a weak-willed dude. He's certainly not leading his family, that's for sure. Jezebel sends a messenger, so she's like, yeah, oh yeah? Elijah just killed all the prophets, killed all my prophets? We'll see about that. Verse 2, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me. Right? She, calls, she calls down curses from her own gods. Uh, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. You killed the prophets? Well, guess what? I'm going to kill you. Right? So she throws down immediately. She will have none of this. And this is what we're going to see. Right? That the people seem to have had a change of heart. They've fallen on their faces. Seems like revival's coming. And now we have Jezebel. See, a lot of your problems, you know, the people that confront you, they can be like Ahab. They're, they're easily overturned. Well, Jezebel isn't. All right? A lot of the things you face are more like Jezebel. They're not going away. And the culture pushes back, and the people push back, and difficulties push back. And you're like, whoa, I thought we were going to overcome that. I thought we'd get by that. And sometimes you know, your hope rises. We're, we're going to walk through it. And all of a sudden, wham, the door gets slammed in your face, and sin emerges, and, and the difficulties come back. Well, that's what's going on. Elijah gets this slam-in-the-face message, hey, I'm going to kill you. There is no revival. Right? Ahab has turned back over to just following her. So that revival, he's not going to bring it. So Ahab, or Elijah knows it's done. This revival is over. Jezebel's back in control. She says she's going to kill me. The, the people aren't going to do anything about that. Ahab isn't going to do anything about that. My so-called revival is done, and he is absolutely heartbroken. Heartbroken. We're going to look at that in a little bit more detail, but that's what's going on. He, he wanted good things. Please understand that. He's a humble man who wanted the right things. He wanted God to be honored. He desired for the people to turn back to God. They were God's people. He wanted the king to honor God as he was supposed to. He had all the right desires. And all of it gets dashed right here. I'm going to kill you. Right? you you're, this, this, this revival is over. She bullies him. Now, it is fascinating that even Jezebel, as strong and as powerful as she is, she doesn't show up with a group of guards to kill him. Why not? Well, the fire just fell. It seems like she's maybe a little bit, got a little, a little worried here. So it's, a, it's, it's an interesting message. I'm going to kill you tomorrow. Right? So, so what is she really doing here? It would seem to me that she just wants him gone. Right? She's a bit tentative. I think even here, uh, confronting Elijah can bring some problems. So better to try to bully him into just getting out of the way, which is what she does. By the way, Satan is a great bully. This, this is what he does. He makes it seem like you, you have no chance. So this is Elijah is confounded by men, and Elijah fears man, not God. That's what we're going to see. He fears Jezebel. He loses sight 
of the true fear of God that, has, that led him to Carmel, and now it's going to lead him, a lack of a fear of the Lord is going to lead him to run out of the way. And Satan would love to do this. Because Satan can't actually defeat you. Jezebel couldn't actually defeat Elijah, even if she killed him. He still wins. He's a prophet of God. He's going to be with God. He knows this. In fact, he's about to appeal to God to take him home. He knows where he'll go. He can't lose. But Satan will certainly make it seem like you will lose. If you don't bow to the culture, if you don't bend the knee to this, if, if, you know, if, if you don't get discouraged and frustrated, shake your fist at God, Satan will bully you into doing that. He's not actually stronger than God. He's, I mean, he's not, it's, not, it's not a fight. It's not you know, black and white and God, Satan's almost as powerful as God. God is infinitely more powerful than the evil one, than our culture, than the people that come against us, but they look really big. So Jezebel kind of puffs herself up. You better get out of town. I'm going to kill you. Even though it would seem that she's not quite so confident that she could actually get that done. She just wants him gone. She bullies him. Well, guys, we must not respond to that. We must not allow the evil one to cloud our minds so that we turn away from fearing the Lord and start to fear the things around us. But clearly Elijah does. So he instantly caves. All right. Now, we would expect him to say, what? I just killed 400 of your prophets. Your, you know, your husband is on my side. The God of Israel has shown up in fire. You know, bring it on. Right? He just did that on the mountain, didn't he? He said, bring it on. Prophets of Baal do your thing. What has happened? Again, it's a different circumstance. Now he has a, he's a more difficult enemy and what he hoped to happen. See, he's, he's heartbroken. This is, why, this is why you get discouraged. You don't, just, you don't just get discouraged for no reason. You wanted things to happen. And if you're a Christian, so often what you wanted were good things. You wanted a marriage that was strong and healthy, and yours isn't. You wanted children who would walk with God, and some of your kids have walked away from God, and you're like, whoa, that's not what I expected. That isn't what I wanted. You wanted a good church experience, and you're wrestling and struggling. People haven't responded to you. You're like, I, I didn't want it to be that way. This is a good, solid church. Why can't I connect? I mean, you picked the thing. You would want to work to go well, and you were trying to honor God there, and you got fired. You got laid off. You're doing everything right. You were serving the Lord. You wanted your boss to look good, and he turned around and fired you. And you're like, God, what is that? This happens to us. If it has not happened to you, you again, you're, you're 14, you're 12, right? I'm, and even then, it's probably happened to you, the things that you wanted. If you're a Christian child, you might have had tremendous discouragements and difficulties, even at a young age. Because this is why Christians, because if you're just sinning and you know, abjectly just displeasing God, well, you ought to be discouraged. I mean, there's just not a lot that you ought to be encouraged by. But that isn't most of you. It's not most of you. The wrestles and struggles you have, yeah, it's, there's sin combined, as we'll see. But oftentimes, it's because you wanted what was right. You were, you were actively serving the Lord, and even the greatest servant of the Lord can grow discouraged when things don't turn out, the very things they wanted. I mean, look what, look what Elijah does. And he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life. I mean, he just stood down, 400 prophets of Baal and Ahab, and Jezebel just sends him a message, a messenger, one guy, not even the army, one dude, and he's like, I'm, I'm out of here. And he runs. This happens to us came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. It gets even worse, and he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So he runs away, right, in, actually into Judah, where there was a godly king, where he could have found some help, but he doesn't stay there. He, in fact, he leaves his servant and says, we're done. Ministry's over. Ministry's over. We're all finished. You stay here. I'm just going to walk out into the wilderness and die. And again, this is our tendency when we are bullied by the evil one. Elijah loses his cool. He loses his confidence. He's disheartened and disillusioned. 
And so he runs away. Guys, again, sometimes your enemies are Ahabs, right? But the really difficult ones are the Jezebels. Those are the ones where you are, you this morning perhaps, are in despair, discouraged about things that you so wished would happen that you look into the Bible and go, that should have happened. That, it should, that should have been the way. Uh, you can just see Elijah saying, it's not supposed to happen this way. This is supposed to be a revival now. I did all the work that I needed to do. I was strong. I was brave. I stood up to the king. I did the prayers you wanted me to do. There was supposed to be revival. I thought there was. There isn't. And really, the strength of his elation, of his desire, of his passion for what is right, really leads to the crash. That, that there's, it's it's uh, such a high that when, he's, when his, these expectations are dashed, that he's totally devastated. So, in, on your outline, first he, is, he fears man, not God. And then he focuses on himself. This is what happens. He's not focusing on God. This, and this always happens. When you run, when you get discouraged, when, when you fall into despair, when you allow that to, to dictate your actions, because we all get discouraged. We all wrestle with an overwhelming feeling of why did this happen? Every one of you will wrestle with that. The issue is what do you do when it happens? Well, here he gave, he gave in. He did not run to the Lord. There's no indication that the Lord gave him the opportunity or gave him the command to run out into the wilderness. He certainly didn't say, go out in the wilderness and ask to die. Right? Everywhere else that Elijah has gone, he has been directed by God. He, in chapter 17, he went to Ahab and told him it wasn't going to rain. Then, under God's direction, he went to the brook and was fed by the ravens. Then, under God's direction, he went to the widow at Zarephath and was fed there. Then, three and a half years later, under God's direction, he goes back and confronts Ahab, goes up on the mountain. Remember what he says? I am doing this all by the word of God. That's what he says when he's on the mountain. I'm just doing what God told me to do. Well, here he's not, right? Because what God is going to do when he confronts him is say, you need to go back. You're in the wrong spot, right? You weren't supposed to run out here. You need to stay and do your work. It's, it's going to be a strong message but God isn't just going to respond immediately with that. This is a sweet, sweet text. Because as we walk into this year, we, you know, if we just leave with Mount Carmel, like, oh, I'm going to walk into the earth. Everything's going to be great. And maybe you are already going, man, I just got slapped in the face by five things. And I don't even know what I'm going to do this year. I don't feel much like Mount Carmel. Well, oftentimes we don't. And there will be many times in this year where you should have done better and you don't. I mean, is that not true? Can't you look back at your life and say, I should have done better. And I should have not caved in. I should have pressed forward, but I didn't. Well, what does God do when you do that? Does he go, yeah, see, you're not my child anymore. Drop, kick you out the door. Well, other gods do that. I mean, Baal just left his people to get slaughtered. That's what the false gods do. But the real God doesn't do that, as we will see. He'll just drop, kick you out the door. Because there's one of you, and certainly myself included, who has not known better and failed miserably. Miserably. Because of our disobedience, because we have not focused on God but on ourselves. Every one of us has done that. It will happen again. What will we do? Well, he walks out into the world. So this is Elijah focusing on himself. And he says, look, God, just kill me. You might notice his fear of death has evaporated. He's not so much afraid of death. He doesn't want to be killed by Jezebel. And he doesn't want to kill himself. He knows that's wrong. Elijah is a man of God. Suicide is not some kind of noble thing. What is he saying? He's crying, Lord, you take me. Right? You, you be the one to do this. But, but again, notice what he says. So he lays down, or he goes out, verse 4. He says, he requested that he might die. And he said, it's enough. Now, O Lord, take my life. For, for Why? For I'm not better than my fathers. He's talking about the prophets that came before him. It's like they all were trying to turn Israel back. None of them succeeded. I thought I could do this. And again, 
it seems clear that he thought he could do it under the hand in the power of God. It's kind of a subtle blaming of God here, as we will see, which was, I thought I could get this done. I was your prophet, but as it turns out, I'm not any better. His, his own ego, in one sense, is crushed here as well. It's like, I, I, didn't, I couldn't lead him back either. So, Lord, I'm done. My ministry's over. There's no need for me to continue on. And you might have felt that way. Look, I'm done. My parenting. Look, look I, I tried all this and my kids didn't respond. Or one of them didn't. Or several of them didn't. I'm done. I don't need to be doing this anymore. Or just, just, just take me out. Probably very few of you who haven't had some thought of that in your life. Lord. And, and not, yes, it's, yes, it's selfish. Yes, it's the wrong way to think. But if you're going to cry out to someone, would you please cry out to God? Yes, do that. I mean, Moses did, did this, remember? When, when listen, the people are turning away and he's got all these responsibilities. God, if you let me out here to do this difficult thing with these two million people, just kill me. I can't do this. I can't get it done. So at least and always in your depression and in your discouragement, always turn to one place. Turn to the Lord. God answers his prayer, not as he wants it, but he does answer. Remember, God does answer our pleas. So cry out to the Lord. It's the right place. Don't go, you know, don't grow silent. Don't call out to somebody else. Call out to the Lord. Now, you will notice that he left even his last servant. It says he left his servant in Beersheba. This is, again, what Satan bullies us to do. He bullies us to walk away from God's people, from people that can help us and encourage us. I see this happen all the time. I'm discouraged in the church, and I'm discouraged in my family, so I'm just going to walk away from the very things that God would use to draw you back, his people who love you and, and care for you and bring God's word to you, and you make excuses. Well, people are hard and people didn't treat me well and, and, and God isn't doing what I wanted, and so I'm just gonna isolate myself from people. I'm not even worthy to be around people. I'm, I shouldn't even be in this church. I'm just gonna go. That, that's always the wrong move. Always that is Satan's direction to walk away from God's people and to do things that aren't according to his word. Those two things. And if you see yourself doing that this morning, you, you need to, as we'll see, you need to cry out to the Lord. That's, that's a very dangerous place to be. Elijah's in a dangerous place. And yet he is, he's a true believer. He's Christ. He's not some pagan. Right? He doesn't know what to do. He's crying out to the Lord. He's wrestling and struggling with this, even though he's, he's failing here. And he's focusing on himself. Lord, you know, God, I couldn't do it. So just take me, right? I, the things that you told me to do that I wanted to do. Certainly there's some pride here, some fear here, some self-pity here, some loneliness here. But I do want you to remember that all of this was prompted by wanting to do what was right. That's why he's here. He was trying to do what's right. Now he could have stepped past this again, could have walked through it without this response. But too, I, I'm convinced we have this in Scripture to show us that we have these kinds of responses. We wrestle in this way. We need to identify the things that are, are wrong as we do this, but also we then need to cry out to the Lord to watch what he will do. I remember Job when he was going through his difficulties. Lord, just kill me. Why was I even born? If it's going to be like this, why did I even see the light of day? I would have been better to be in a miscarriage, Job said. He was wrestling mightily in the midst of his difficulties. God's people do this. They wrestle mightily. So we want to be careful that we understand this process. And, and I, I would ask, I mean, is your discouragement and your disappointment if you're sitting here this morning wrestling and when this happens in your life, I mean, is it because God didn't get what was best? Really, that is ultimately Elijah's thought. This was for you, God. This would have been good. I mean, are you discouraged because God is not being honored and God's people are not responding to him? That's Elijah's discouragement. Yes, it's built into his own selfishness, built into his own desire of what he wanted to accomplish. But are we even discouraged by that? Are we just discouraged by we didn't get what we wanted? Well, I just sees it here as God isn't getting what he deserves. 
And, and God's people are not doing what they ought to do. I would pray that if we are depressed and discouraged, that it would at least it would be bound up in that. God, we, we longed for things to, to be accomplished. We longed to see your name lifted up. And we're crushed that, that things aren't. That comes. It happens. Oh, this is, this is so sweet. Elijah is comforted by God. He's comforted by God. I'm, this, this is one of the, I think this is one of the sweetest passages in all of the Old Testament, maybe the Old and the New Testament. It is so tender. Let's, we don't have time to dig deeply into it, but it says he lay down and slept under a juniper tree. I mean, he's out in the middle of the wilderness. There's not some big spreading lush fruit tree or, you know, some, some giant, you know, shade, shade tree. A broom tree was like a little scraggly stick thing, like an ocotillo if you lived out in California. Uh, you go out to Joshua Tree. It's just scraggly, stickly bush. You know, it's about three feet high. He lays down on the scraggly bush in the middle of the wilderness. Nobody's for hundreds of miles around. His servant is gone. He just lays down in despair. Underneath this bush, it reminds me a little bit of Jonah, where he just you know he, God causes this thing to grow up, this scraggly plant to grow up, and you know Jonah's sitting there, and in his discouragement, he just he just lies down. Now Dale Davis, as I mentioned, who wrote an excellent commentary on this, you should get it if you can. He says thus far Elijah has been responding only to Jezebel's messenger, right? Jezebel sent a messenger. God has been excluded from his arithmetic. He's been behaving somewhat like the anti-hero Jonah, traveling to a far-flung place without a divine travel permit, attempting to write his own contract for the job of prophet. I mean, remember Jonah. God says, hey, go to Nineveh. Uh-uh. I'm going to write my own rules, right? I, you know, I'm, I'm your prophet, but I'm, I want to prophesy when I want to prophesy, and I'm not going there, so I'm going to hop on this boat. Well, I mean, Elijah responded pretty similarly. God, uh, things didn't happen the way I wanted. I'm not going to continue here in Israel anymore. I'm going to be done. I'm going to travel somewhere far away. God hadn't given him permission, no travel permission to do that. Now, we're going to see, however, that God responds to Elijah much differently than he responded to Jonah. It's a different thing. It's a different kind of prophet going on here, a different person. Elijah has a deep, strong, passionate, intimate relationship with with God. He is a man of God truly, not just in name, but in his character. You need to know that because you need to know that men like that can wrestle and struggle and fall and fail. He's not a Jonah, just because a pretty pagan guy anyway. Might have been a believer, that's a whole other discussion, all right? But certainly started out just angry and, and pagan like. Not Elijah. He didn't start out that way. And God responds to him differently. So he lay down and slept under this tree. Behold, again, I love that word. Watch what's going to happen. Some, some amazing, exciting, totally unexpected thing happens. So in the narrative, the picture is he's wiped out. He's totally discouraged. He asked God to kill him, and he goes to bed maybe thinking God would do that. Maybe God will actually take him home. So he goes to bed, but the next thing, it's like he, he wakes up like you do in the middle of the night. You're not sure why. You're like, whoa, whoa what just happened? Well, what happened is an angel went, hey, Jonah, I don't know if he or Elijah. I don't know if he poked him or what, but as he wakes up and there's an angel right there. But not only that, it gets better, right? So he, he looked and behold, so the angel says, he gives a message, hey, arise and eat. And I was like, what? I don't, I, I don't even think, it doesn't look like he brought any food. He came out there to die, right? So he's like, I, what am I going to eat? The angel says, arise and eat. And then he looked and behold, another behold, lo, this amazing thing that was at his head, a bread cake, baked on hot stones and a jar of water. The, the text is very visceral. There's, there's hot bread there that had just been baked. What, what did this angel do? The angel baked the bread. 
I mean, you couldn't set up a movie scene like this where Elijah lies down hundreds of miles from everywhere in the middle of the night. The stars are bright. He's underneath this scraggly tree. He's asleep, and you see the picture of this angel. However he shows up, whether he materializes right by him or walks out of the darkness into this and starts a fire and and kneads the dough and bakes some bread, produces the jar of water from wherever, however, and, and then pokes Elijah, look, here's this hot bread ready for you to eat. This, this is an angel of the Lord. And as we will see, look in verse 7, so not just an angel, but the angel of the Lord. Almost always, 90% of the time, probably in the Old Testament, when you see angel of the Lord, read Jesus. Read, a, we call it a Christological theophany. That is Jesus taking on human form, not the incarnation, but before Jesus himself. I think we can take that to the bank here. That Jesus himself shows up and says, hey, I'm just going to cook you some bread here. Sits poking in the fire, baking the bread, pokes and says, hey, get up. Well, Elijah doesn't even say that. I mean, this is how wiped out he is. And maybe it's also the nature of the person sitting there. Remember, oftentimes when Jesus comes to Abraham, he just looks like a man, right? It doesn't appear that he's in some shining garb. It's like a dude sitting there by the fire. And Elijah's like, oh, okay. Gets some food. Goes back to bed. I mean, an angel at least, probably the Lord Jesus is sitting there. He's so wiped out, so discouraged, he just, okay, kind of mumbles, you know, fumbles through the bread. Looks like he consumes it all, goes back to bed. And then what happens? The angel cooks some more. That, that's, what it, that's what's in our text. The angel came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat, more food. Right? So he, he, he doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't wake him up and say, why are you here? What are you doing? Running from Jezebel? What a fool. I mean, God is strong. He doesn't say any of that. He says, look, have some food. You're wiped out. You're discouraged. God, and oftentimes, now, you know, this passage isn't, isn't a technical manual for how to deal with depression, but it certainly gives us good principles of how God cares for his people that are wrestling with that. I mean, he gives us a picture. He gives him physical food. He gives him, he says, look, get some sleep. Oftentimes you do need that. Now, in depression, we tend to just want to go to bed and not get up. We do need to get up and eat, and, and we can, you can't sleep all the time, but it can certainly be an issue. Get some, get some good rest. Get some food. Get some physical sustenance here. And this is what this angel, again, I'm almost certain the Lord Jesus provides. I mean, it certainly reminds me of the time when uh, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appears to the apostles like, all right, here we go, and then he disappears again. And he came to them occasionally, but finally Peter's like, I don't know what's going on here. He says, we're just going fishing. So they go fishing and, you know, trying to catch some fish. And then on the, on the shore, who shows up? Jesus, what is he doing? Cooking breakfast, right? Cooks for them, says, eat. And then what restores Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Gives him three opportunities. He responds, I love you, I love you. Okay, feed my sheep. Become the apostle that you're supposed to be. Restores him in the midst of his bitter frustration. This is what God, God does this. Don't forget that. Christians fail. Men of God, people who love Jesus like most of you, fail miserably. And God is still your God. He is still the God who cares for you, still the God who comforts you. He does not go anywhere. He emerges from the darkness and makes provision. You might say, well, I wish Jesus would do that for me. He has. He appeared on this earth in the darkness. The light has shone. We just celebrated that. And when he left to be back with the Father, what did he do? He sent the Holy Spirit to be with you to permanently indwell you. And that permanent indwelling is then tied together with the truths of the word that comfort your heart and strengthen you and enable you to know that he is still here. His word is still being given to you. It's here. 
And the Spirit of God enables this word to bring the proper comfort, much like the word of the angel directly given to Elijah brings him comfort. And the food the angel gives is is certainly the food that we receive from from the principles of Scripture. Because God is comforting you. He has come to you. He has not left you alone. And when you fail miserably, it's not like the Holy Spirit goes away. Hey, no Holy Spirit for you. You're not my children anymore. I don't know you. When, When you want to get things right, you know, you figure it out and come back to me. We do that kind of thing. God does not. His Holy Spirit goes nowhere. It's right there. His word is there for you. His people are there for you. Take hold of those resources. And here, Elijah doesn't even proactively do it. God does it. And God does. He works in our hearts that way. He promises. He brings us back to himself through these truths and through his people. So Elijah's comforted by God. He's revived with physical food as this angel comes and cares for him. I think of Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord, Jesus and camps around those who fear him and rescues them. So what he does, he doesn't leave you, he'll never leave you or forsake you ever. And so often we recognize that, okay, when I fail or when, when others fail and when things are, I get it. But when I fail, no, that's different. That's different. I should have known better. Well, you're right, you should have. And yet God is faithful to you when you're faithless. And we, we wrestle, each one of us. And then he says, get, he says, get up again, and he sustains him then with spiritual power through the food that he provides. So this is, a, this is a miracle then that happens, right? The food is real and he eats it and it gives him that physical strength. But then it says, he rose in verse 8 and ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to whore of the mountain of God. It's another name for Mount Sinai. It's about 200 miles away from Beersheba. So it goes down to the same place where God met with Moses when he was on the way to take the people to the promised land. And he gets gets kind of a wilderness wandering. God God seems to do this. The 40 days, I think, is a real amount of time. It should have only taken him, it was about 200 miles, so maybe 15 days to to travel that far. So apparently God was dealing with him even as he's wandering in the wilderness there. God does this. There is kind of a, a picture, a metaphorical understanding also, but it's not metaphorical only. As so often in Scripture, metaphors are tied to real things. So a real 40 days, he's really wandering around, and God is ministering to him during that time. Or really, probably just as he wanders, he's, he's, he's thinking, well, I, you know, it gives him plenty of time to think about it. I, I need to get back and do what I need to do. So it takes him a little longer, but he gets there, and he, he says he camps in a cave, verse 9. He came to a cave. I mean, many speculate, I think... Certainly could be true, but you remember at the top of Mount Sinai, there was a cleft in the rock where God stuck Moses so that he, he couldn't see his glory going by. Just see the after, the after effects of his glory. And God spoke to him, you remember there. He gave him his word, very similar to what's going on here. Right? Where it's not in the power, the impressive, even God's presence. He, says, Look, he said to Moses, you can't see my presence, you'll die. But I'll speak to you, I'll tell you who I am. I'll give you my word, I'll, I'll make the proclamation. It's almost exact, I mean, a very similar thing for Elijah here. Or he actually shows up in some powerful displays, but it's really his word that's the issue. I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to tell you what to do. And this is God's pattern. He does, he does do miraculous, mighty things. He may do whatever he wants, and he does them. And, and he does them now, and he'll do them again. But those are not the guiding principles of our lives. Those are not the ways that we just kind of steer our lives through those mighty things. It's through his word. So Elijah is sustained with revived with physical food, as he's comforted by God, and then he is uh, sustained with, with uh, spiritual power. And now we have God confronts Elijah. So please understand that God does comfort, and he comes alongside of us, and he just cares for us, and he's, he's so good to do that. And we need to do that with people. 
We need to reflect that to people. So we'll bring out the sovereignty hammer like in one second. I mean, Jesus didn't sit next to Elijah and go, don't you know that God is sovereign? What's the matter with you? God's in control. What's your problem? Now here, have some food, have some drink. Because I think, I think we can learn from that. It doesn't, isn't that we abandon God's sovereignty? That we don't tell people the truth. But sometimes we just use God's sovereignty and his powers like a hammer. We beat people on the head with it. I mean, the vast majority of you here know that God is sovereign, yet you're still getting ripped apart when your child walks away from God and when things are difficult and when you lose, it still rips you up. It's not like, it's not like that fixes everything. It's true. It will enable you to respond properly, but the sovereignty hammer can be badly, poorly wielded in the hands of uncaring people. We've got to be really careful with that. Now, now God is going to yield the sovereignty hammer. <laughs> so he is going to bring it out. It's the velvet sovereignty hammer, which is, I am sovereign. You do need to remember that, and you have to stop focusing on yourself, because this is always going to be the case. As comforting as God is, the things that he brings, the care that he gives you, at the end of the day, you're going to have to stop looking at yourself and what you wanted to accomplish, and what you wanted to get done, and the way you thought that things would go, you and I are going to have to stop dictating to God how things ought to go, because he doesn't let you do that. You get no opportunity to stand in his counsels and tell him what to do. You don't get that privilege, and Elijah didn't either, because God is doing a work here that Elijah doesn't want, right? The the revival that's coming is going to come after the exile, He's going to discipline his people through the harsh judgment of other nations who will destroy them and kill their children because they've disobeyed God. It is God's purpose to bring his judgment on the basis of the people's rejection of him and the king's rejection. He's not going to bring revival right now. It's going to come later, and he's going to keep his own people, but he has a different plan. Because we have a plan. God should do this, and God will bring this, and we think this will happen. It's fine to have one, but when you don't get it, you're going to have to yield and that's what Elijah, or God is about to do. So Elijah is confronted by God here at the mountain. So he says at the end of verse 9, what are you doing here? So Elijah is questioned by God. So he's confronted by God and he's questioned. Now it is fascinating that God often asks questions like this. And Elijah could say, well, you told me to come. This part, God did tell him to do. Go to the mountain. Go there first. You shouldn't have been out in the wilderness. I didn't tell you to go there. But go to the mountain and then I'll, give you, I'll tell you what to do. It could, could have been snarky because well, you told me to be here. But I think he knows what God is saying. Why did you start this journey? What were you doing out in the wilderness? Why are you here? Not the implication, not back in Israel preaching the prophetic message. You might remember that God did this to Adam. He said, where are you? God knew where he was. He was trying to bring out a point. Why are you hiding from me? And so Adam has responded, I've sinned, and those sorts of things. So This is the question God is asking. Scripture will do this. It will question you. Why are you here? What are you doing? Why are you not following the Lord? You read the Bible, and that's what happens. You come to a sermon, and that's what happens. Somebody says, why are you here? Why are you doing what you're doing? You're going to have to respond. That's why we have God's word. God is physically confronting Elijah here because he's a prophet. He gets to hear from God like that. You hear from God through his prophetic word that the Spirit of God empowers you to understand. So he says, why are you here? And notice how he answers. He's kind of kind of this canned speech. He kind of like pulls out his iPad and says, all right, here it is. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets by the sword. I alone am left. They seek my life to take it away. He's like, so there, God, that's why I'm here because everything is wrong. Right? Your people are walking away from you. You've let your own altars get taken, you know, get torn down. I've been zealous 
Right? We see, we just hear, it's kind of like a, a teenager. I've, I've done that. I did everything you told me to do. And look, all these things, it's against you that all, all this is happening. But then he brings it back to himself at the end. They're trying to kill me. And, and you're, not, you're not saving me. There's an implication here. So of course I'm here. Why, why, would, why would you think I'm here? And we can tend to respond to God like this. Even here, he's not, he's not cured, as it were. He's still thinking about himself. So God says, all right, well, I'm going to tell you what to do. So he says to him, uh, he doesn't, by the way, he doesn't answer, doesn't answer the statement. He says, go forth, stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. He says, look, all right, I'll, I'll give you a message. Are you going to tell me, I'm, you know, I'm not, my, everything's falling down and you're going to die and there's, you're the only one, there's nobody left, all these things. All right, uh, I'll, I'll let you know. Tells him to go out. It's fascinating, Elijah doesn't go out. He stays in the cave, but he still knows what's going on. The, the, uh, the, text, the writer of the text reveals to us. So it says that, behold, the Lord was passing by. A great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks. Well, that's the Lord, right? No, and the Lord was there. He was doing those things. But notice what the text says. The Lord was not in the wind. Right? That, is, that isn't where he, his presence was manifesting. He, I mean, he was doing that, but that wasn't the work, the ongoing work that he was going to do. He says, look, I've got this impressive display, but that's not what I'm doing. I did that, but I'm not in that. That isn't the thing that I'm accomplishing. And then he, just to make his point, he sends an earthquake. I mean, it would have been awesome to be there. God himself hurling a great hurricane and rocks are breaking against the mountains. Then the, the earthquake begins and the whole mountain shakes. And then, fascinatingly enough, but it says that God was not in the earthquake. He said, look, I'm showing you this, Elijah, but this isn't what I'm doing. And then he shows him some fire. I mean, so it says the Lord was, there was a great fire. I mean, falls out. Who knows what that looked like as the fire of the Lord falls all around the mountain, probably more awesome than at Mount Carmel. But he says, look, he says the Lord was not in the fire. Now, wait a minute. God had just been in the fire. You have to be really careful that when God does something or works in a certain way, well, he'll always do that. That's always God. It's fascinating. I mean, Satan can send fire. It's, it's, not, it's, the, it's the context of what's going on and what God says about it that is what matters. We had the divine testimony that Carmel was God and that he was making a visible display to, to, to show his strength so that the prophets of Baal would be killed. That was what was going on there. But God doesn't always work like that. And in fact, what he's telling Elijah is, I'm not going to work like that. That isn't actually how the revival is going to come. I'm not in that. Right? I'm not going, that and those mighty displays, done. And that's not how the revival is going to come. I mean, is, is that going to frustrate you? All these things happen and all these things going on. You want to see the mighty, powerful display? I got to say, normally, I actually don't usually work that way. I mean, I'd love to see revival in our nation and our world, other things. He might do that. God does do those things. But you need to understand that sometimes he says no. In fact, what he says, as I've mentioned, I'm, I want you to go anoint Hazael, who is the enemy, the king of Syria, who's going to destroy, rip the babies out of the wombs of the mothers of Israel. Because I'm going to work that way. Lord, I don't want you to work that way. You can't, you can't work that way, because he was not in the big show. We all wanted to, you know, Lord, just come. Bring the rapture. I want out of here. You can't demand that of the Lord. Things are really bad, and I want to... No, the Lord will work when he wants. It may be that you walk through a time where you're killed. Well, God, you should have brought me out of that. God may work as he desires. And sometimes it's really, really hard. For his own people here, he's going to take them through this time of utter destruction, ultimately unto captivity in Assyria and Babylon, where they're eating their own children as they go into captivity, God says, I'm not going to change them right now. That isn't the way that you or I would pick it. That isn't what Elijah desired. But it is, God says, this is what I'm going to do. 
congregation, are you ready for that? In this coming year, are you ready for God to do the hard things and not be in the fire and the earthquake and, and the immediate deliverances, but to walk you through the Hazael's and the Jehu's and the Elisha's who will just continue to pound home? You know, this is what this is, you know, the difficulties that God can often bring. That's often what we, we don't want that. Right, so God, God questions him. So Elijah's questioned by God. God asks him a question. Elijah answers him. I've been zealous, all these things. Then God, God, Elijah's summoned. That's number two, he's, or number three, summoned by God, where God says, look, go out on the mountain. God's not in the powerful display. God's in the gentle blowing. So let's bring this home. So instead of those powerful displays, it says, and after the earthquake of fire, the Lord isn't in the fire. And after the fire, a sound, verse 12, of gentle blowing. One of the most unfortunate translations in all of the of the history of translation is the new King James translation of this has a still small voice. As though now how God was gonna work is gonna, some, some quiet prompting in Elijah who just listened to the voice of God. Now God's gonna work that way. And, and so you know, if you listen carefully inside your heart, you'll hear the still small voice and God's not gonna do the mighty thing. That's not at all what this text says. This is an external manif- physical manifestation. The, the New, New American Standard gets this right. It's a gentle blowing. It's another physical manifestation. You had the wind and the fire and the rocks, the earthquake. Now you have just a gentle sound of wind. Not the mighty wind, but the gentle one. No voice, no, no one's called, because God is about to speak. It's, it's contrasted directly with the actual speaking of God. Don't look inside your heart for some little voice that you thought was gonna be there. Some nudge or urge that if you, just, if you could just get a hold of that, that's how God is working. He's never worked that way, ever. He never nudges internally. He never gives you little, you know, little fake signals. I wonder what that was, and I feel excited about this, and I wonder if God did something here. He never works that way. You can't point me anywhere in Scripture where he puts kind of inaudible, ununderstandable little urges in you and expects you to understand how to follow him through that. He never does that, ever. You can't point me to any place in Scripture where he does it, and it's certainly not here. Because what happens is he hears the physical manifestation. He goes, oh, that's different. Oh, that, that's new. And he walks out. He wraps his mantle around his face like he's not sure what to get. The fire was just there. It's like uncertain what I'm going to face. He walks out. Then God speaks to him. And when God speaks to him, it is utterly distinct. There is no misinterpretation. He doesn't have to wonder, what did God say to me? What's going on? It is absolutely clear. It's objective God speaking. And that's how God speaks in the scripture. And that's what he uses. I'm not saying God doesn't work subjectively in your heart. That is, he uses the principles of scripture to inform your mind, will, and affections to help you make godly decisions to work in certain directions according to his principles. That's ongoing all the time where he is working in your heart through the word of God. But he's not directing you with some word or special knowledge you need. It's all here. And so you make your decisions based on these principles and that is sufficient. And you walk forward in the midst of that. So when he comes out, so this is, he, God was in the gentle blowing. God reveals himself now. So God, Elijah's commissioned by God. He gets the second Q&A. So God's second question, which is the same as the first, where are you here? Right? Same thing. But it's very clear, very distinct, not quiet. So he can't hear. He doesn't have to strain his ears. He says exactly the same thing. He pulls out the script. I've been very zealous. They've broken down your idols. I'm the, you know, I'm the only one, or your altar. I'm the only one who's here. And they're trying to kill me. He's still not, he hasn't learned yet. But what is fascinating is that God doesn't rebut him. He's like, well, no, you're wrong here and you're wrong here. No, he just commands him. And this is what God did with Job. This is what, he doesn't make his explanations to you. He might have all kinds of questions. And God explains as far as scripture goes, but those are the only explanations you are ever going to get. 
Don't expect that God will somehow. Because I'll sit with people in counseling and go, I don't know why God is doing that. I wouldn't do that, right? I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't have those things happen in your family. But I'm not God. He is doing it, and I don't know why, but, and he's not going to tell you why, but he's going to give you what you need to walk it through. So the only way that God responds here is he commissions him. He, after that second questioning, God, he gets, he, God gives him a commission, and he says, look, go and anoint Hazael, go and anoint Jehu, go and anoint Elisha. Again, the king who would bring judgment from external sources on Israel, the king who internally, Jehu, who would punish Ahab for his sin, who would destroy the line of Ahab, utterly wipe it off the face of the earth in God's judgment upon the kings. That's what Jehu was going to do. And then Elisha was going to continue to bring the prophetic ministry to call the people back to God, that God is going to judge you, which he ultimately did. He says, look, Elijah, your work is done. That is, it will be done, but you have to be the connecting link to the next work that I'm going to do. So I can't take you out. You don't get to go home right now. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to give you this commission. Guys, keep working. I don't know where the world is going to go. I don't know if God is going to return in a couple of days or a couple of hours. He could come at any time. Don't mistake me. But there is no way for you to know that he's going to show up tomorrow. You have to be faithful to accomplish the work he's given you to do. When your family falls apart, when you have a difficult church experience, when your work goes a totally different way than you expected, the key is keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep your eyes on his people. Keep your eyes on his word. And you may yet die before he returns and you're a link in the chain for God accomplishing his work. Now, what's fascinating about Elijah, we know the end of the story, right? He didn't die. God not only did not answer his prayer to die, he didn't ever die. He comes and picks him up because Elijah is like Enoch. I think we can make that correlation. Enoch, we, you learn in Genesis, I started my one-year Bible this year and you, that's what you get hit with that right away. It doesn't say that Enoch just lived. It says in all that genealogy, read it over again, it says all the other people lived a certain amount of years and had children. It doesn't say Enoch lived. It said Enoch walked with God for 400 years, for 300 years, and then he was not for God took him. He walked with God. That was unique in that time. God says, hey, you're coming to be with me. Elijah was similar. Even though he failed, even though he blew it, even though he shouldn't have, you know, caved under Jezebel, God says, hey, I'm, I'm going to let you finish your work, and I'm just going to take you right to be with me. You're not going to die at all. Now, the sweet thing is God might do that for you, right? He is going to return. He is going to, in a twinkling of an eye, bring those who are still alive when he returns to be with him immediately, and you're not going to die at all. But he doesn't promise you that, right? But he might. That would be incredibly exciting. But you might go on to a painful, horrible death. I don't say that lightly or flippantly. He chooses, and you allow that. And then he leaves them with a promise, right? So he gives them commission. Look, go do these things. This is going to be harder than you ever thought. And I'm not finishing the work now. You're just one piece in the chain. It doesn't get to stop with you. It's going to, be, it's going to go on. But then he leaves them a promise, and I leave you with a promise this morning. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. My work will never be thwarted, ever. Elijah was afraid. He says, look, I'm the last one. If I'm done, no one will be serving you. This whole nation will be toast and your work will be done. God says, don't look. You're not the only one. I'm the one that keeps people faithful. I got 7,000. Now, that's not a lot in the millions in Israel. But he says, I'm going to keep 7,000. You don't need to worry. My work will go on. Because that's the one thing that ought to draw us forward, inspire us, strengthen us. God's work will go on. He will use you. He wants to use you. He will, but he will then keep that work moving forward, and that's what we delight in. 
his ongoing work to preserve his people, to bring about his purposes. So that's my prayer for our church in this coming year. I don't know what it will bring. And we're experiencing wonderful, you know, uh, financial growth and, and numerical growth, and we've got buildings planned. God might erase all of that. And if he does, he's good. I, I don't wish that for be, to be the case. I pray that we will step on and accomplish all those things, but he could take it all, and he would still be a good, great, powerful, mighty God, and we would press forward in honoring and working for him if he takes it all. Because that's the, that's the idea. We're not here to build a big building and to have a big presence. and to, We want to do as much as God would enable us to do. We're here to serve him. And we're here to keep his work going from one generation to the next in however he will use us. Might we together do this well in the coming year? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us in the midst of difficulties. Lord, thank you just for the... We are not in difficulties. You've given us so many good things, finances and people and facilities and land, or so many things. But I pray that we would not get caught up in, in how you might be working, but that we would simply be used of you for how you will work. And as a congregation, that we with confidence and joy, even when we stumble and fall flat on our faces, that we would rest in your provision that we would look again to your people and to your word and to your purposes and walk into this new year to accomplish the work you've given us. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.